Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here, gathered as uh, God's people in Hollis Center, Maine. Today we're continuing in the book of Acts, starting in uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and going all the way through chapter 8, verse 3. So we got a lot of territory to cover. And I've entitled this message, I'm Not Listening. I'm Not Listening. And if you don't know who I am, my name is David. I am the uh, teaching pastor here. I'm part of the pastoral team and also a member of the preaching team. Now, this past week, uh, my buddy Josh, some of you might know Josh, he pastors down the road at Lakeside. There was a new pastor in the area, Livingstone Community Church got a new pastor, and so we thought we'd give him the toa through the old poet. And I honestly, I felt ashamed because, you know, Josh isn't even from Maine, and he knows Portland way better than I do. Like, way better. Like, no GPS, no nothing. He's eating at, at like, half the restaurants. And I avoid Portland like the plague. And I, I tend to be a homebody. I'm not as adventurous as I should be. But something that became very clear is that I'm a creature of habit, and I like what is comfortable. Which is why I go to like the same three restaurants that are very predictable and affordable, and I know what the experience is going to be like, and so I end up missing out on stuff like this. Right? So we went to this Ethiopian place. I, I got to try something I've never tried before, and, and we got to walk around some shops. There are all sorts of uh, blessings that I miss out on because I like what I can control. I, I like going to the same Thai restaurant over and over and over again. Don't even need the menu. It's only 20 minutes away. And so I miss out on stuff like that often. And so what we're going to see today in, in Acts chapter 6 and beyond is that we as people have a dangerous tendency to reject God's rescue in favor of what we feel we can control. We have a dangerous tendency to reject God's rescue in favor of what we feel we can control. So if you're not already there, please turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We also have some black hardcover Bibles scattered around this room. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen. But we had just seen in Acts chapter 6 that there were seven individuals who were chosen to serve in the early church specifically to address a problem where there was kind of a mixture of some, some ethnic cultural tension and bad administration that was causing issues for the early church. And so Stephen was one of these guys, and he kind of rose to the top of the list as being the chief among these seven chief servants. And in verse 8 of chapter 6, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people that God was really doing an amazing work in and through Stephen. And this is really interesting because Stephen is not one of the apostles. It's clear that the Holy Spirit was doing a work that was spreading beyond just those 12 who were the core leaders of the church, but even Stephen was able to do some miraculous things, and he was doing these among the people. He was going out, and he was reaching others, ministering to others, and it got him into some hot water. Continuing on in verse 9, it says, Then some, 
of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. I'm going to stop right there. So Stephen, it seems, was interacting with Greek Jews. He was himself a Hellenistic Jew. And he was interacting in these synagogues, these places of worship for Greek-oriented Jews. And so he's debating with these guys, and they are not able to withstand what the Holy Spirit is doing in him, the power that is working through him. And so they fall back on plan B, which is to, to get some ruffians to say that he's a blasphemer so they can bring him to trial. It's very similar to what happened to Jesus not long before. And so they have these false witnesses, and then these uh, Greek Jews, they stir up uh, the scribes and the chief priests. They stir up the Hebrew leaders of the Jewish religion, and they, they basically make the claim that this guy keeps talking about Jesus, and Jesus stands opposed to everything that we hold dear. That Jesus stands opposed to the temple. Jesus stands opposed to the customs that were given to us by Moses. And there is some truth in their claim. Jesus did say that the temple would be destroyed. But if we were to look at, uh, let's say, Mark 7, 8, we mentioned it in growth group this morning, Jesus was not opposed to the law that was given by God. He was opposed to the way they had twisted the law, and they had added custom after custom, tradition after tradition onto the law to the point that it became a burden on the people. And it did not fulfill its original task. But here is Stephen. He's in hot water with the Jewish authorities. And in verse 15, it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? I honestly don't know. We don't really know what it means, but clearly there were people in this setting who saw Stephen. They were eyewitnesses of this event, and they could clearly see whether it was just some divine innocence or just the power of God resting on him. Later on, recounting the event, they said there was something going on in Stephen. His face was like the face of an angel. Continuing on in chapter 7, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Stephen's, Stephen begins his defense of sorts, and his appeal is to these men as fathers and brothers. He is not viewing himself as separate from these guys, but he's saying, Look, we're, we're family. We're Jews, we're Israelites, we are of the same people, we are of the same thing that God has been doing 
throughout time. He's appealing to them with this language of brothers and fathers. And what I'm going to do, because he has a long sermon here, but not as long as my sermons, you could probably read this in less time, but Stephen has a long sermon here, and so what I'm going to do is, is kind of summarize it and walk through what he's saying. I, I heavily, heavily, heavily encourage you, if you have not already this week, go through and read Stephen's sermon. Make sure that I'm representing it properly. But Stephen begins, and he refers to the living God is the God of glory who appeared to our father Abraham, right? Abraham was the one who's, who was the God chose in the beginning as the father of all Israel. And God came to Abraham and he said, look, I, I have a new land that I'm going to send you to. And Stephen makes the point, he says, guys who are listening to me, listening to me right now, you live in that land. Like God's promise came true. You live in the land that was promised to Abraham. Yet Abraham, when he got to the land, he didn't own it. He was a sojourner. And yet the land was promised through his son and his son's descendants. And Abraham had to trust that. And God also promised that there would be an exodus. There would be a, this time when God's people would be brought into slavery for 400 years and then be delivered. God also gave Abraham the symbol of circumcision. He gave, he gave Abraham this agreement that God would be with him and with his descendants, would bless all nations through him, and they had a sign, a symbol of that. And Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had the 12 patriarchs. But those brothers didn't really get along. And so there was a brother named Joseph who had a, a dream from the Lord that he was going to rule over his brothers. His brothers didn't like that idea. And so they, they rejected him. They sold him into slavery. And yet God used that plan of rejection for their good. That Joseph sold into slavery. God rose him through the ranks of Egypt, gave him the foresight to prepare for a famine so that his family could then come to Egypt and be saved. But those ancestors, those patriarchs, they died in Egypt. They didn't get to come back to the land. We did take their bones, brought their bones back, and they got to be buried on the same land that Abraham had bought. But back to slavery. God was true to his promise. There was a time when Hebrew babies were being killed. By order of the Egyptians, they were being left out to die. And yet in that time, Moses was spared. He was raised by Egyptian royalty, he was given Egyptian education, and at the age of 40, he woke up. His heart was with his own people. And in a fit of passion, he killed an Egyptian who was mistreating one of his fellow Hebrews. And Moses thought, okay, they're going to get it. They're going to realize that God is rescuing his people. But they rejected Moses. And Moses ran away. And 40 years later, living in the wilderness... God appears to Moses in the burning bush. It's a story that we're very familiar with. And God reveals himself to Moses as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And he says, hey, take off your sandal. Come, I will deliver my people. This is holy ground. Take off your sandals. I'm the one who's going to deliver my people 
through you. And so the rejected rescuer gets to be the one who comes back to Egypt and through mighty miracles given by God delivers his people out of slavery. Now, now just as an aside, at, at this point in Stephen's sermon, he's established that God has been faithful to the promise But each generation has only experienced a piece of what God was doing and have often at times flat out rejected the salvation, rejected the rescue that God was offering them. And that Moses, the rejected rescuer, was revealing the same God in a new way. He wasn't offering them a new God to worship, but he was revealing that same God in a fresh way, and they didn't seem to like that too much. And Stephen also brings up holy ground, because if you remember their complaint, part of their complaint is about the temple. Because to these Jews, the temple was kind of the end-all, be-all of religion. The temple, then that was it. That was the pinnacle of our worship of the living God. And here Stephen is pointing back to a time where, look, there was no temple, and God's presence was in the middle of the desert. It was a wasteland, and yet it was there that, Mo- that Moses was told, this is holy ground. Back to the sermon. Stephen makes the point. He says, this Moses, God worked through him with miracles, and as a prophet, Moses promised a future prophet who was going to come. He even received the law from God, and yet they pushed, him to, they pushed him aside. Like throughout the wilderness, they complained. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They longed for the security, even though they were slaves in Egypt. They longed to have the food security that they had back in Egypt. And they even practiced idolatry. Like in the wilderness, they made idols with their own hands and worshipped those. And here Stephen quotes the prophet Amos as extra proof. And then Stephen brings up the tabernacle. He says, guys, remember the tabernacle? Before we had a temple, we had a tent where we could worship God. And that tent, it moved around from place to place to place. Was it until King David that there was even a thought of building him a physical building? And then his son, Solomon, was the one who actually got to build it. Yet, was that really where God lived? That's the point that Stephen makes. Is, did God really live in the temple? He says, no, the prophet Isaiah told us that God cannot be constrained to a physical dwelling. You can't keep him in a house. He's not a pet. And so in this sermon, a pattern emerges, one, of God not being limited to the temple, and two, Israel rejecting what God was doing time and time and time and time again. Now in verse 51, this is where the sermon takes a turn. He stops talking about us and our ancestors and kind of hones it in at his audience. And this is the kind of stuff that uh, gets you in trouble for sure. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
He ain't pulling no punches there. Stephen says, look, you guys are just like your fathers. The fruit does not fall far from the tree. Your ancestors persecuted the prophets, killed the prophets, all those guys that God sent to draw Israel back into relationship with him to proclaim the Messiah who was going to come. Your fathers mistreated those guys. They didn't like their message. And now you have done the same thing in killing the Messiah that they talked about. You killed Jesus. You murdered him. You guys received the law from God, but you don't obey it. Yeah, what do you think the response to that was? Because their line of argument, these Jews who were upset with Stephen, their line of argument is that you are presenting something other than how God has revealed himself. We have the temple, we have tradition, this is how God has revealed himself. You are offering something new. And Stephen is saying, I'm offering something that God has done consistently through time that you have rejected time and time and time and time again. Stephen says, is the temple really God's ultimate solution? Do you really obey the law? You have always resisted what God is doing, killing Jesus, just part of the trend your ancestors made idols, and I think this is really the point Stephen is making. You have turned the temple into an idol. That your love of the tradition and the temple is actually getting between your true worship of the living God. And so their response in verse 54 through 60, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The response to this message is not dialogue. It's not a debate. They plug their ears. They say, we don't want to hear this anymore. And they rush to kill him. Drag him outside the city and begin pelting him with rocks. And it's in this moment where Stephen has a vision of the reality that they are denying. That he sees God and he's not in the temple. He's in heaven. And he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And it's amazing that in Stephen's last moments, as he is being killed, he sounds a lot like Jesus. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. If you watch a lot of action movies... That seems like a weird response. Because usually in the action movie, when someone gets killed, 
They like to spit curses at the person who's killing them. You know, you think you're going to get away with this, and then then the person dies. And yet Stephen is actually praying for the people who are killing him, just as Jesus did when he was on the cross. In chapter 8, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this this instance of Stephen being executed just like lights off the city of Jerusalem. That suddenly there's this big movement of like, okay, we got to deal with these Christians. We got to get them out of here. And Saul, who was kind of the overseer of this execution, he becomes extremely zealous. He's hauling people off left and right. And so the Christians scatter. And in scattering, they're actually becoming faithful to the promise of Jesus in the the beginning of the book of Acts. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so only a small remnant stay in Jerusalem, and Saul is ravaging the church. And it's at this point in the story where you go, okay, what can men do against such reckless hate? Like, how do you respond to a persecution like this? And what God does with Saul next is spectacular. But we aren't going to talk about that now. That's for another week. But to hone in on what we're talking about, we have a dangerous tendency to reject God's rescue in favor of what we feel we can control. We often falsely assume that we have kind of figured out God's plans that we have him fully figured out, and he's all on board with everything that we're doing. I feel like I'm doing a lot of toddler illustrations recently, probably because that's just, you know, what's in my home, that's what's in front of me. It's interesting to watch yourself in a two-year-old form because I used to do this thing to my parents where if they were calling for me to do something, I just pretend I didn't hear them. None of you have ever done that, of course, no. Um, and my daughter does it. She pretends that she doesn't hear us. And she just keeps, you know, playing, poking at rocks or doing whatever she's doing. And any of you who have ever been a kid, known a kid or had a kid, like you've experienced this, that kids have their own will, their own desire to do things or not obey. Sometimes she'll just ignore us. Sometimes she will insist that she has to do this thing her way. She'll say, Ellsworth, do. It's all about what she does. We can't put our hands on it. Or sometimes she'll tell us to leave the room. Mama, go outside. Daddy, close the door. You know, she doesn't want us interfering with her business. And we can look at a child and we can say, man, that's silly. But we do the same dang thing. We do. We might do it with more words, with a little bit more subtlety, but we do the same thing, especially in our relationship with our Creator. 
in Stephen's outline of Jewish history, he says, look, Joseph's brothers chose what they could control over submitting to Joseph as their leader. Israel preferred Egyptian slavery to following God through the wilderness into the unknown. They saw the miracles of the living God, and yet they made their own gods to worship because an idol, you can manipulate that. They killed the prophets who were sent to draw people away from their twisted religion and toward obeying God as he had commanded. And they killed Jesus, the one who was promised, but who also would overturn the system that they had built to control others and yet somehow feel faithful to God while doing so. And here in Acts, they plugged their ears and killed Stephen for reminding them of these things. Those responses sound extreme. I don't think, I would hope that there's no one in this room who's ever gotten really angry at someone and said, all right, let's drag them out of the city and stone them. All right, if so, we're calling the cops, okay? It doesn't fly around here. But we have these same heart tendencies. We do. I have them. It is way easier to attack and silence someone than change. It's way easier to discredit someone who is speaking truth into your life than change. Whether the idolatry was carved images in the wilderness or the temple itself, Israel often appealed to what they could touch over trusting the living God. Because if you think back, back in their day, they had all these different idols. And the idols are simple, right? Do this and you will get this response. Like pray this prayer, offer some bread to the fertility goddess, and you're going to have more kids. Right? It's a simple little equation. You can carve it. You can manipulate it. The living God doesn't play by that game. He's not an equation. He calls his people into the wilderness. He calls his people into the unknown and says, trust me, I have a plan, but I have the long game in sight. If things aren't going well in the meantime, don't worry, I've got you because I'm in control. But we don't like that because we like to be in control. And so, so how do we today fall into rejecting or silencing God's rescue in favor of what we can control? I think it looks like a cocktail of tradition and desire. That we, we mix tradition and desire. We create this, this layer of, well, I've always done things this way. I've always lived my life this way. I've always worshipped this way. And, and this is how I want to live my life. This is what I want to do with my life. We, we mix what we have always known with what we want to do. And then if something doesn't match that, we plug our ears and shout it out. We plug our ears and move on. And the difficulty, if that's what we do, we are limiting or attempting to limit God's access to our hearts by the limits of our decisions and the limits of our lifestyle. Stephen makes the point that God works consistently through different times and ways 
He says, don't be like those who persecuted the prophets. Be like Abraham, who trusted God, even though he had not fully received the promise. So what do we have before us, right? Christians, and many of us in this room are Christians, here in the 21st century. What, what truth is God presenting before us to respond to? What rescue is God presenting before us? And it's the gospel. It's the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That we are sinners. Like we are born into this world with a heart that is twisted against the things of God. That, that we do not match his standard of perfection. And yet we're made for a relationship with him. And yet simultaneously are unable to achieve that relationship for us. Unable to, to win God's favor. And that's where Jesus comes in. That the God himself, the Son of God, the man Christ Jesus, came down, was born in human form. He suffered and died on the cross, taking the wrath of God on himself. So that if we put our trust in him, he has paid the bill. The justice that was supposed to come our way has gone to Jesus. And then what follows is that Christ begins to change our hearts and change our lives. And all of this is part of a greater work that Jesus is doing in making all things new again. And one day, there'll be a great resurrection where all of us who have died will be raised, will receive new bodies, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, the old will have passed away. All will be new. That's the good news that's before us. That's kind of what we have to come to grips with and wrestle with. And for those of you in this room who don't know Christ, that, that initial step is letting go of your path and saying, this is how I've always wanted my life to go. This is how I've wanted to live my life. This is how I have wanted to think. And letting go of that and saying, Jesus, I trust you. Because my, my path isn't going to work out. My way of thinking isn't going to get me anywhere with God. It isn't going to get me anywhere in life. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, we have to trust God's process. I don't like that sometimes, trusting God's process. It's really tempting to think I have this Christian life figured out. Nothing I believe is wrong. The way I live is exactly what God wants. And yet, those types of things that sometimes seep into our brains, deny the fact that we are a work in progress. And that we are not perfect, but Christ is, and he is changing us. We might think that we don't live that way, but what happens when we're confronted with a better understanding of God's word? What happens when the Holy Spirit starts convicting us in our hearts? What happens when trustworthy Christians come around us and say, hey, there's something wrong here that you need to address? Often we don't want to hear it. We distract ourselves. We try to drown out the truth. We push people away. We distract, we deflect because we have a dangerous tendency to reject God's rescue in favor of what we feel we can control. Recently, I was confronted by a good friend, a good Christian friend, 
about some behavior in our relationship that was not honoring towards him, honoring towards God. And I would, just, just in hindsight and just evaluating everything, it is so twisted that one of my earlier heart responses, mind responses to this confrontation was to shift blame, to defend myself. That is grade A evidence of this, that when we often receive truth, we don't want to receive it. We want to push it away. We want to stop our ears and continue doing what we're doing, continue living the way we already live. Like I had a choice in front of me. Continue in my pattern that is hurting others but is familiar or admitting that I was in the wrong and needed change. And we've all been in those places before. We all have. And yet, that's what God has done consistently throughout human history with his people. This is what Jesus offers. He points out to our sin and our dysfunction. He says, look, what you're doing, it's not working. Matthew eleven twenty eight. I really believe this is, this is Jesus' response to us. His call to us. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in, my, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a, that's a game changer. That's a game changer. Because rather than God just saying, hey, you don't make the cut, work harder, Jesus provides for us the forgiveness that we could never get for ourselves. He puts the work into the relationship that we could never put into it. So following Jesus, it's not easy, but it is restful. And so in a sense, it is easy. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because God is the one working in and through us to change us and transform us. I'll be honest, I don't have a super specific application today. Part of the reason, I just struggled with this sermon a lot this week. But also part of the, the other half of that, I don't know your hearts. I don't know what God is doing in your hearts right now. I don't have x-ray vision. I don't even think x-ray vision works that way. But here's what I do know. I do know that God has a good track record. That's what Stephen appealed to. That's what many of the writers in Scripture appeal to, that God has a good track record in trusting him in the process is better than us blindly following our customs, our patterns of living, our ways of thinking that we're used to. We have a dangerous tendency to reject God's rescue in favor of what we feel we can control. Let us embrace the healing that Christ wants to bring to our lives, whatever that looks like. Responding to his truth and his love rather than pushing it away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,
We have no hope apart from you. None of us in this room have a full understanding of who you are. None of us in this room live perfectly. None of us in this room treat others exactly how you would have us treat them. So thank you for the cross. Thank you for offering forgiveness. And thank you for the process that we can trust you through because you are making all things new. Help us to dwell on that and be changed by that and trust in that this week. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.